Well, good morning and welcome, Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you with us this morning. I want to start by, first of all, issuing a thank you. Um, after Father's Day, I received a number of uh, compliments. I even got a few emails. And the one email um, said this, Charles, I just want to compliment you and thank you for such a great message on Father's Day. That's because it was so short. That was what he, in fact, he went on to give me the perfect formula for a sermon. Here's what he said. The perfect sermon has a fantastic introduction, a dynamic conclusion, and as little space as possible in between the two. Well, for the benefit of that person and the rest of you, that will not be happening today. Well, we are in a series that we're calling Top Ten. Carlos started us last week by looking at Philippians 4.13. And I'm going to continue today by actually thinking about uh, some of the same stuff that we thought about on Father's Day since I had a short period of time. But we're going to put it into a top 10 context. In Matthew 16, Jesus gathers with a few of his disciples. They're resting, relaxing, kind of just hanging out. And eventually they have this little discussion. And in the midst of it, Jesus says, I will build my church. I don't know about you, but, you know, as a pastor, I, I think about that a lot. And that really is one of the top ten for me. That verse, that sentence is really comforting, you know it? I think about it. We here in leadership, you know, the staff gets together, senior leadership team meet, the elders get together, and we're always wrestling with, well, God, what do you want us to do? We pray, and, you know, God doesn't answer audibly. We're trying to figure out, should we do this? Should we do that? But every once in a while, we have to breathe a sigh of relief and say, you know what? Ultimately, it's not in our hands. It's pretty comforting to realize Jesus is building the church often in spite of us. But that sentence, that verse is also rather convicting. Because I have a tendency to want to build the church the way I want the church to be. And Jesus kind of interrupts that and says, time out. I'm building the church. You're not to build the church. Jesus doesn't bless the competition. So if I'm trying to build something contrary or if our board or if our SLT is trying to build something contrary to what Jesus is building... Yeah, that's not going to be very successful. We're actually working against what God wants. So in that sentence, we've got something that's comforting and something that is pretty convicting. And I hope that you experience a little bit of that too. Because I know that you want Calvary Church to be the way you want it to be. And that's a little convicting. But it's comforting to realize that regardless of what you want, what I want, Jesus is kind of building the church. So it's a good, good way to think about it. Jesus building the church. Comforting and convicting. Now, Carlos started by mentioning three questions. What's going on? What does it say? And what does it mean? So here's how we're going to approach that. We're going to look at two contrasting case studies of two contrasting case studies of a worship service. So there are a number of worship services kind of described in the Bible. We're going to look at two of them today. They're very different from each other. And I have the sneaking suspicion, Jesus really likes one. He's not too pleased with the other one. But you're going to have to do your work as we go through because you need to be wrestling with the what does it mean part. So what's going on? I'll give you a little bit of the background. What does it say? We'll walk through both of the passages 
And then at the end we'll say, yeah, but what does this mean for Calvary? What does this mean for me as Jesus is building the church? Well, let me tee up the first one. It's found in Luke chapter 6. Now here's what's going on. Religious leaders have always fixated on one passage, one verse, one idea, one concept, almost to the exclusion of a whole bunch of other stuff. And here's what happens. When we take one verse or one idea, one theological point, one passage, and we so focus on it and fixate on it, we wind up pouring our biases into that particular concept. Well, we're spending so much time fixating on this one thing that we wind up ignoring or downplaying a whole bunch of other stuff, which means we wind up with this great imbalance. Now, in Jesus' day, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they fixated on the fourth commandment. All right, so think with me. Honor your father and mother. God, fourth commandment is the Sabbath commandment. In Exodus 20, the Sabbath actually makes the top ten, you know, God's top ten, the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment says this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, why is that? Well, the Bible kind of explains it. And the basic idea of Sabbath, keeping it holy, separate, right, holy just means separate, keep it separate, is for realignment. After the winter, you need to get your front end of your car realigned, right? Because all the potholes that your tax dollars never go to fixing, it seems like, kind of whacks your, you know, knocks your front end out of alignment. So you either need new tires, new rims, or you have to at least get the front end aligned. That's what Sabbath does. On a regular basis, realign. Now, how do we realign? Well, the Bible tells you. You realign by resting from what you normally do, by recreating, recreating from the normal activities. You realign by remembering, and you realign by uh, adjusting, right? So all those kind of things are there. Now, here's what the religious leaders did, though. They then began to add a whole bunch of details that are never mentioned in the Bible concerning how to keep the Sabbath holy. Literally, they added hundreds of details that have nothing to do with the Bible, but they thought they were really good ideas. Here's a few. How much weight can you carry on the Sabbath? Well, they actually came up with the right amount of weight. If you carry a small amount of weight, that's okay. A lot of weight, no, 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 you cross the line, that's a violation, that's a foul, can't do that on the Sabbath. How about the distance you can walk? So if you park real close to the sanctuary, you know, to the auditorium, that's okay. But if you park all the way back over there, you need to get a golf cart or something, otherwise you break the Sabbath when you come in. How about cooking? Well, you know, it's okay to cook hamburgers and hot dogs, but you can't go roasting a big hunk of meat, and you certainly can't cook vegetables on the Sabbath, right? Because all those things are kind of out of bounds. They came up with hundreds of rules and regulations. All of a sudden, they were so fixated on their rules and regulations that the basic idea of realignment is now in the background, and all of their rules and regulations are on the foreground. Jesus shows up, and he winds up breaking a whole bunch of their rules and regulations. Jesus is regularly aligned with God's word, always aligned with God's word. He's keeping the Sabbath regularly. He's not keeping their rules. 
And they're continually throwing flags. That, that's a flagrant foul, violation. Jesus, you're out of bounds. You can't be from God. You're breaking all our rules. And Jesus is saying, but they're your rules. They're not God's rules. See how that works? Well, that's kind of what's going on in Jesus' day. Now, in Luke chapter 6, the beginning of the chapter, Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath. The Pharisees call an emergency board meeting. And they get together and say, you know what? Healing is a violation. Because if Jesus healed the guy, obviously he had to exert effort. In order to exert effort, he had to do work. If he was doing work, that's not keeping the Sabbath. Jesus is in violation. That's a flagrant foul. That's a five-game suspension if you're a Catholic. That's a mortal sin. That's what he did. Well, what do they do? Well, they then set him up. This is all what's going. They set him up. Now, think about the, how sick they were. They scour the town trying to find a pitiful, pathetic-looking person in need of healing. And they bring that guy to the worship service. And they place him front and center. Because they know Jesus can't look at someone who needs healing without doing something about it and healing them. So in the worship gathering, they set a trap. They bring in the guy and they put him right in the front. And Jesus is there having the worship. And they just know Jesus isn't going to let this opportunity go. So let's read the account beginning in Luke 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was, th was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. It's a setup. But Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand up here in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Jesus then said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with, with one another what they might do to Jesus. Well, that's an interesting worship service, isn't it? What attitude brought those people in? Oh, yeah, they came to worship God and sing God's praises to see what God would... What? They came to critique they came to complain. They came with their little script, and they were keeping score to see how the service went. Was it following what they think needs to happen and their little rules, or was this something beyond that? Sick and twisted, right? So let's talk about uh, kind of what's happening. The drama. Jesus notices the man. My guess is that the guy that had the deformed hand did all that he could to conceal that. Don't you think, wouldn't you? So my guess is he kept one arm of his robe 
kind of over it, and he would sit there. You ever think about what life must have been like for him? Pretty hard to golf one-handed, right? It was his right hand. That's the hand you eat with. That's the hand you show honor with. That, that's the hand that you use for all the honorable tasks of life. Some cultures still follow that practice. But this man couldn't use his right hand. He could only use his dirty hand, his secondary hand. And he kept his right hand concealed. He comes into the worship service at the invitation of the Pharisees. Maybe he's thinking they're kind and really want to help him out. And they give him a seat of honor right up front. And Jesus uh, sees him. And Jesus calls him up onto the platform. Usually uh, people that have lived with a disfigurement like that, they don't like public appearances. And my guess is he didn't want to go up onto the platform at all. But Jesus looked so kind and inviting, he goes up. And then Jesus tells him to do the unthinkable. Stretch out your hand. He didn't want anybody to ever see his hand. It was still covered. But Jesus said, no, stretch it out. Stretch it out in front of everybody. And he probably cringes as he stretches out his hand and the robe is pulled back. And all of a sudden his hand is perfectly restored. And maybe a gas comes over his face and then a smile. And everybody in the room is gasping and Jesus is smiling ear to ear. Um, What happened at the end of that service? Did you notice that? Um, The service is quickly over because they immediately break out in singing the doxology, right? The band comes onto the stage, praise God for... No, they don't. The Pharisees round up everybody and they run out of the place thinking how now they're going to exercise judgment on Jesus. How hard-hearted can you be? They just see right before their eyes a legitimate god ordained miracle and they can think of nothing but bringing condemnation and judgment onto the one that brought the miracle don't you think they'd stop and say who can heal like that only God maybe this is God's messenger no 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 Jesus doesn't fit their script Jesus doesn't fit their profile Jesus isn't living up to what they say should happen it certainly this shouldn't happen in a worship service it's the Sabbath they run out looking for a way to convict him and eventually execute him because he's breaking their little rules wow talk about a worship service Well, in my mind, as uh, everybody exits the room, most of the crowd probably gets caught up and they all leave too. And at least in my mind, uh, there's only two guys left. Jesus and the guy with the healed hand. And maybe they uh, sit on the edge of the platform. And the guy says to Jesus, uh, did I just get you into trouble or something? And Jesus looks at him and says, you don't worry about me. Don't worry about the trouble I'm in. Let's talk about your hand. What are you going to do? What are you going to do first? 
going to go home and show your family a restored hand. You're going to go to a really nice restaurant and for the first time in your life, put both hands on the table and eat with the right hand. Maybe you're going to do that. Maybe you're going to be a juggler. That'd be good, right? You have two hands now, learn how to juggle. That'd be cool. What are you going to do? And the man's mind's racing and he says, I've got so much I want to do. I never thought this day was possible. I can't believe it. And Jesus pats him on the shoulder and he says, my son, go use both your hands to honor God, to serve him, and you'll never regret it. And he leaves. And Jesus is all alone in that auditorium where the worship service was just rudely interrupted. And Jesus looks around at all the empty seats and says, Father, this can't be what you intended. But someday, someday soon, you're going to send the Holy Spirit and worship services are going to be different. They're not going to be filled with critics. They're not going to be filled with people that have developed their own little script of what needs to happen. They're not going to be filled with people that show up with their little scorecards and mark everything according to what they think should happen. It's not going to be like that. Father, I can't wait for that day when people gather to thank you for the grace and forgiveness that I'm soon going to purchase. And then they're going to live lives where they extend that to everybody around them. Lord, this is not what you intended. Let your church soon exist as you want it to be. What's the first case study? How's Calvary Church doing? Do we, uh, I sure hope we don't resemble that church or that gathering too much. But how about you personally? What's your attitude? Um, Do you sometimes come with a gotcha mentality? I'm not thinking of anybody. I'm just asking questions. Do you come with your little script? Do you come as a critic? Do you come seeing how things all measure? Or do you come saying, you know, God, you've been amazing to me this past week. You've been amazing over my life. Your grace, your forgiveness, your reconciliation is incredible. I just come to praise and worship you for all that you've done. And I want to be wildly expectant and excited over whatever you bring. How do you come? What's the first case study? Second case study is found in the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, right, on the day of Pentecost. And now the church, you know, is kind of officially born. And the Spirit invades those gatherings. And my favorite example of a church service is found in Acts chapter 16. We don't learn too much about the details, but from a verse at the end, we kind of see how it all fits together. Verse 40 of Acts 16 says this. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison. They went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. That's kind of another worship service, right? Paul and Silas were in prison. They get out. They go to Lydia's house. Kind of a worship gathering, a worship service at her church. They meet there with the brothers and sisters. Oh, a lot of encouragement going on. Then they leave. Let me tell you the backstory. Carlos last week spoke of Philippians This actually, in Acts 16, is the beginning, the founding 
of the church in Philippi. So let me tell you about the founding. Paul, Silas, and, you know, kind of the missional team, they show up in Philippi, and there aren't enough men to form a synagogue. You need at least 10 men, so a very small number of Jewish guys there, I guess. So Paul goes out to the river looking for a gathering of men or women to whom he can share the gospel. He shows up, no men, only women. One of the women in that little gathering is Lydia. Now, Lydia, for those of you who don't know, is a very wealthy entrepreneur, CEO, businesswoman. She is well-connected to royalty and movie stars and professional athletes. She knows it all because she sells purple. And the only people that could afford purple were athletes and movie stars and politicians and, you know, and kings and queens. That's why purple's the royal color, because in order to make it, they had to go through this really expensive process with seashells and stuff, and you had to be really, really rich in order to buy purple. Lydia sells purple. She owns the business. She's out uh, on the side meeting with these other women. She's connected to really wealthy, royal kind of people, but she has a heart for God because she's gathered together at a prayer meeting. Isn't that interesting? She's wealthy, she's a CEO, she's well-networked, and yet she knows something's kind of missing, so she's meeting together to pray. She's not Jewish, she's not a Christian, she's kind of trying to figure this thing out. Paul shows up. Paul reads some passages from the Old Testament. The coins drop. Lydia says, So Jesus is how this all fits together. Paul says, you've got it. Lydia becomes a Christian. Lydia puts her faith in Jesus and what he did for her. This successful CEO, well-connected woman says, you know what? I'm missing something, and Jesus is not only what I'm missing. He's everything I need forever. I'm now a follower of Jesus. That's Lydia. The second person Paul introduces us to is a slave girl. And Paul's doing a pretty interesting thing here. He's giving us the opposite end of the continuum, right? Lydia is really, really wealthy. The slave girl is a slave. She, is, she owns nothing. She's dirt poor. She's owned by somebody. You can't be more impoverished than that. Lydia is well-connected. She's disconnected from family and friends, from everybody. She is doing the bidding of the guys that own her. She's got this crazy ability, some kind of demonization, something going on. She's able to predict the future. She must have been pretty good at it because her owners are making a whole bunch of money because she's telling people what their fortunes are. Well, she's kind of irritating beside all that, so she follows Paul around and says, this is the witness, this is the one proclaiming the good news of the most. Eventually, Paul says to the, get out of her. Would you stop this? And immediately she's freed. Bondage is gone, the prison cells are open, and she is now liberated. Liberated from her spiritual oppression. Oh yeah, but now she's also liberated because her owners can't make any money off her anymore, and they take Paul and throw him into court. But before we get to the court session, notice she's not just irreligious, she's demonized. That's the opposite of Lydia. She's searching. She's impoverished. She's the opposite of Lydia. And she finds forgiveness and grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she becomes a Christian. And she becomes a sister 
to Lydia. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Well, eventually, her owners are so upset, they drag Paul and Silas into court. They're arrested, thrown into prison, and then we meet the third character. He's the jailer. Now, if you look at that socioeconomic continuum, he would be right in the middle. He's not super rich like Lydia. He's not dirt poor like the slave. He's kind of blue collar. He's a prison guard. They even wear blue collars, actually, right? Probably an ex-military guy. When it comes to religion, he's indifferent. He's seen too much death. He's killed too many people. I mean, he, he's retired from the military. He's got a job guarding people in prison. He's heard all this crazy stuff before. He wants nothing to do with it. But that night in the prison cell, Paul and Silas are singing praise songs while they're in prison. And the jailer says... I've never seen anything like this before. I've heard a lot of bad words come out of the prison cell at night. You know, after all, they've been kind of beaten on and stuff. And I've heard lots of others. I've never heard people sing praise choruses while they're in prison in the middle of the night. And they're joyfully singing. So the jailer says to Paul and Silas, how can I have what you guys have? You know, I've been through some tough circumstances and I'm never joyful. I'm never, I'm never singing praise choruses. I'm always yelling, screaming, cursing at somebody or something. You guys are like happy and I just beat on you. What? And the jailer becomes a Christ follower. And he becomes a brother to Lydia and a brother to the slave girl. Now here's what I think Paul's doing. Paul isn't introducing us to every congregational member of the church in Philippi. He's giving us a continuum. And he says on the one end are the super wealthy and connected, and they're part of the community. And on the other end are the dirt poor, the slaves that were demonized, and they're part of the community. And there are blue-collar guys kind of right in the middle, and they're all part of the community. They're all part of the church. And at the end of the chapter, that group, Lydia, they're at her house. The slave girl's there, the jailer's there, Paul and Silas are there, and probably a whole bunch of other people are there, and they're all together. And you know what? I don't think they're complaining. I don't think they have their little score sheets out. They, huh, now, did, did anybody get healed today? Because it is the Sabbath. Did they jump? They're rejoicing. They're encouraging one another. They're celebrating. They're amazed at what God had done. What are some lessons we can learn from that? Here's, here's an important one. My guess is Jesus really likes and enjoys that second worship gathering. Not too thrilled with the first one. Just guessing. Which of those do you want Calvary Church to be? Do you want us to be more on the Luke 6 end or more on the Acts 16 end? And how about you? Do you show up most weeks more on the Luke 6 end or more on the Acts 16 end? You see, there are two contrasting worship gatherings and you know, there's a whole continuum between them. But I don't know about you. I really want to be on the Acts 16 end. I want to be on the end that's continually amazed at what God's doing, where we're seeing people become followers of Christ in miraculous ways and ordinary mundane ways. And things are getting done as we continue to, to do what Jesus started. Don't you want to be Acts 16? Well, here are a few challenges. Let me tease out some challenges for you uh, and me, and then we're done. The first one is the gospel focuses on the eternal. I'll let you know a little secret. Your little pet interpretation of this or that 
is temporal. Uh, my guess is, you know, 500 million years from today, we're not going to be wrestling too much with all the hundreds of details on what it means to keep the Sabbath because we're going to be realigned perfectly forever. But what are some things that we sometimes fixate on? Sad to say, they're often the temporal. So a few examples. Um, your favorite music style, it's temporal. Do you really think for eternity we're going to sing 20th century revivalistic hymns? With pipe organs? I don't think so. Do you think we're going to sing 21st century praise choruses? I don't. Maybe we'll sing it all. I don't know. But I know it's not going to be one. It's going to be all kinds of. Whatever your, your preference, it's kind of temporal. Oh, yeah. Fashion is temporal. Some of you haven't quite figured that out yet because your fashion is from other decades. But, <laughs> but fashion's temporal, right? And so, you know, it used to be a tire to come to church. You know, you kind of wear a suit. I know one thing. There are no ties in heaven. A lot of ties in hell. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> but fashions, look at how fas fashion changes every year. That's how they keep selling us new clothes, right? So whether it's tie, whether it's dress shirt, whether it's jacket, whether, whether it's cargo shorts, flip-flops, T-shirts, bare chest. Oh, please, no bare chest. Um, you get the fashion is temporal. Republican and Democrat is temporal. Thank God, right? Yeah. It's temporal. Oh, yeah. The United States of America is temporal. Just like all the other countries and kingdoms that have come onto the conveyor belt of history and have gone, God has been gracious to America, there's no doubt. His blessings to this country are probably beyond compare, but the United States is temporal. There is no United States forever and ever. Calvary Church is temporal. God never promises eternal life to any individual church. Never. And my guess is you know a whole lot of churches that have gotten planted and have gone along the conveyor belt and churches die and they fall. Churches are not eternal. But there are things that are eternal. The church is eternal. That's the community of people that are followers of Jesus. The church is eternal. People are eternal. Do you hear that? In the guy with the shriveled hand He's eternal. The little rules and regulations and scorecards that the Pharisees bring, they're all temporal. The church is eternal. The Bible, God's word is eternal. Your little man-made interpretations and rule list of details, they're all temporal. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I need to keep in mind, the gospel focuses on the eternal things. So let's focus as a church more on the eternal things Things like what the Bible says, not your little rules that come out of it. People, wherever they are across the spectrum, the values of the kingdom. Let's start living out the values that last forever and ever and ever today rather than live out your little pet peeve preferences of values that are soon going to be washed away. Those two case studies say don't ever confuse the temporal and the internal. And if you're like me, Here's the problem, bigger problem. I sometimes wind up fighting a whole lot more for my temporal preferences than I do for God's eternal 
truth. You're in a real sad situation when that happens. Well, that's the first challenge. Here's the second challenge. The gospel is for everyone. Do you notice that? That's why I love Acts 16. Here's Lydia. It looks like she has it all. She's incredibly wealthy. She's in control. She owns her own business. She's making lots of money. She's well-connected. She's networked with the up-and-comers and those that have already arrived. She knows the professional athletes, all the actors. She knows the royalty, the heads of all the countries. She's got it all, and yet she has nothing without Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Lydia has what most of us are trying to get. She knows she has nothing because she doesn't have what most of us have. Make sure you get that right. But it isn't just Lydia. The slave girl has the same need as Lydia. She's impoverished, she's demonized, she's disconnected from people, she's being oppressed and exploited. She needs the gospel as much as Lydia. They both need the same thing. And the jailer, the blue collar guy in the middle, the guy who's kind of indifferent to everything, he needs the gospel too. Well, if the, those at the one end of the socioeconomic religious scale and those at the other end of that socioeconomic religious scale, if they both have the same need, don't you think Paul's trying to make the point? Everybody on the continuum has the same need. And you know what that means? We better be doing all that we can to not alienate any particular group of people. That really brings us to the next one, and they'll bleed together. Here's the next one. The gospel produces community, not superiority. There's kind of this impulse in every human heart to feel superior. Sad to say, some churches feed that superiority trigger. They say things like this. Those people that are not followers of Jesus, they need to be judged. They need to be condemned. They need to be criticized. We need to trash talk about them. And maybe it'll come to, your, to their senses. What? Where do you see Jesus doing that? Can I let you in on a little secret? We don't expect Christ follower behavior, language, and action from people that aren't yet Christ followers. So if all that stuff annoys you, you need to get over your annoyance. Because we're not that different. We're not different at all. And one day, most of you in the past, you weren't Christ followers either. Our job is to love and serve people and attract them to the gospel that's making a difference in us, not to stand in a superior position condemning, critiquing, and judging, and trash-talking them. And if you want to go do that, Find somewhere else to do it. We're not doing that. Now, how does that work out, this biblical community, the gospel for everyone? Here's how it works out. We who know Jesus sacrifice our preferences to welcome people who don't know him yet. That's how it works. I find it interesting that the Bible calls us to something that we often get wrong, wrong. You ever know, like, we're, often we're not just wrong, we're wrong, wrong. So, so let, let, let me just do it with age. You can do it with anything, but let me just do age. Um, the Bible says younger people are to honor those that are older. Isn't that right? Like honor your father and mother. Honor those that are older. And the Bible also says those that are older 
should sacrifice for those that are younger. That's what parents do, right? The younger honor the older. The older sacrifice for the younger. Here's what I find so ironic. In most churches I know, we get that wrong wrong. We honor the younger. We lift them up. We give them whatever they want. We honor the younger. And we want the younger, especially the older, the older want the younger to sacrifice for them. What? Younger don't sacrifice for older. Older sacrifice for younger. Younger honor older. We need to get that right. So when it comes to our preferences, yeah, younger honor older. Older sacrifice for younger. Those that are already Christ followers sacrifice their preferences for those that are in the journey. That's how it works. That's what we see going on here. Those older, the Pharisees, those had, they had their script. They wanted everybody that showed up at that service to sacrifice to do it their way. Jesus says, I'm not playing. Younger, honor older. Older, sacrifice for younger. That's how it works. I think we have another one. The gospel propels us into mission. You notice in that illustration from the church at Philippi? In one short little section, we see three individuals from across that spectrum give up what they were following and become followers of Jesus. I'll tell you what, if Calvary Church isn't regularly seeing that, then we need to shut our doors and to just have a club somewhere. We need to be influencing people to become followers of Jesus. And we don't do that through coercion. We don't do that through manipulation. We don't do that by giving people exactly what they want. We do that by loving and serving. Um, a little geography lesson. You need that. In Israel, there are three main uh, kind of bodies of water. In the north, there's the Sea of Galilee. And some of you have been there, right? Sea of Galilee is full of life, right? That's where Jesus was always going fishing. He could still go fishing there. Now, it has lots of fresh water flowing in, and the Jordan River, the second body of water, flows out. It has water coming in and has water going out. The Sea of Galilee is a sea of life. The Jordan River flows down. That's where some of you want to get baptized and stuff, I understand. And that flows into the big sea at the bottom of the country, which is called the Dead, Dead Sea. Why is it the Dead Sea? Well, because nothing lives in it. It's dead. You put that black mud on you, float around, right? Uh, no fish can live in there. No animals live in there. You drink it, you get sick, right? I mean, you put that funky mud on you, kind of float around. You can't sink in it. It's dead. Why is the Dead Sea dead? Because it's stingy. It has no outlet. The Jordan River flows in. Nothing flows out. You want to know how to kill a church? Have lots and lots of inputs and no outputs. No mission going out. That church will soon atrophy. That church will stagnate. That church will die. We need input. That's why we gather. And we need output. That's why we scatter. So let me just mention a few of the things that we regularly do by way of mission. We ask you all to give your resources to support our 5K run, and many of you showed up and you ran, so that we can give and support Hope Against Heroin. We support and we supply leaders 
to the crisis pregnancy centers in the area. We support thrift stores and we support uh, other ministries. We have urban priorities where in the recent, I'm just talking a week or so, and in the upcoming weeks, we're doing repairs on people's homes. We're looking to purchase, we're, we're putting Wi-Fi into a church in the city. We've got two others lined up to do um, IT work at them. We've got inputs and we've got outputs. We've had, we have a short-term missions project. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had over 100 people on the platform that are going to Kensington and Haiti and other parts of the world and of our country. Oh, yeah. And it isn't just Calvary Church, and it isn't just Philippi, and it isn't just the Sea of Galilee. It needs to be each of us individually. You need inputs. You need input like a Sunday service. You need input like gathering together and singing. You may need input like a small group. You need input when you gather, but you also need an output, or you're going to be a dead sea. Jesus says, uh, I will build my church. He's not building that kind of worship gathering in Luke 6. He is building that kind of worship gathering in Acts 16. Can I ask you all, make it your dedicated prayer that Calvary Church would more resemble each week Acts 16 and never become Luke 6. Oh yeah, and each of us need to commit to doing our part to live out the Acts 16 not the Luke 6 formula. I'll build my church, Jesus said. Now you know some of the challenges of the church that Jesus is building. Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks for the fact that Jesus is building the church. Comforting words and convicting words. Lord, thanks for these two contrasting case studies. Lord, my prayer, our prayer, is that Calvary Church would resemble Acts 16 and never look anything like Luke 6. We pray in the name of Jesus, who's building that kind of church. Amen.